From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. While it was once thought of as a man's disease, women are now aware that they, too, are at risk for heart disease. In fact, 90 percent, 90% of women have one or more risk factors for developing heart disease. On today's program, we'll discuss women's heart health with a Mayo Clinic expert. If you look at young women under the age of 50 who are having heart attacks, their uh, mortality related to that heart attack is actually higher than men. Also on the program, we'll learn about a new option for treating benign prostatic hyperplasia or enlargement of the prostate gland. And we'll hear the findings of the first study completed in Mayo Clinic's Well Living Lab. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Chives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the American Heart Association, only one in five women believe that heart disease is the greatest threat to their health. But the fact is, heart disease is the biggest threat. It's the number one cause of death for women. One in three women die of heart disease, a lot more than die of cancer. Heart disease doesn't affect all women alike, and the warning signs for women aren't the same as they are in men. In addition, some risk factors are unique to women, all the more reason that women need to know what steps to take to help prevent heart disease. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic cardiologist and director of the Women's Heart Clinic, Dr. Reka Mankad. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Mankad. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Mankad, so good to have you on the program, always. Uh, So still true, most women fear cancer more than heart disease? Yes, that's true. Although I think we have done a better job getting the message out there. So I think women will say heart disease is a number one killer of women, but they never say that it's their number one killer. <laughs> so they recognize it as sort of, you know, that talking piece that, oh, everybody says this, heart disease is the number one killer, but that's not going to happen to me. So it ends up being uh, not something that they recognize they themselves are at risk of. And so, yes, they still worry about cancer. And maybe the men that are listening think, I don't have to worry about this. this, is the women's heart disease topic. But the fact of the matter is that lots of times the women will not go to the doctor we always think it's the men that won't, but the women won't. So the men should be paying attention to this segment. That, yeah, and the that's women true. force their husbands to sure, go, and then they right. stay at home. Yeah. That's, that's true. Well, women's symptoms are less typical, and that's part of the reason. I think uh, we've sort of described a heart attack as this very classic chest pain over the left side of your chest, getting clammy. And women don't tend to have it quite like that. So when they do have symptoms, they usually say, oh, it's something else. Maybe I'm having an anxiety attack. Maybe it's my stomach. Although chest pain is still their number one symptom, it tends not to be the most severe symptom or the only symptom. So they can have pain between their shoulder blades, arm discomfort, more nausea, a feeling of unease, more shortness of breath. So they get a lot more symptoms, and it's not not just that classic chest pain picture that you see, the Hollywood heart attack. Fine, I'll go to the doctor, but first got to make some supper in case I'm not home in time. <laughs> That's what happens. They tend to, there's a great video out there that shows how uh, a woman having the symptoms is getting the kids ready for school, making lunches, getting her husband off to work, and uh, sort of waiting to get in, uh, getting the house cleaned, all those other things. 
Women are more likely to die in the year after a heart attack than men, true or false? Uh, actually, that has changed a little bit. Yes, there is uh, some high mortality rates with heart disease in women, but that's in a younger population. So if you look at young women under the age of 50 who are having heart attacks, their uh, mortality related to that heart attack is actually higher than men. Now, the actual occurrence of heart disease in young women is pretty low, but when they have an event, their risk of dying is high. As far as that after the heart attack mortality rates, we have gotten better. There might be still a slight increased risk for women. A lot of that's also related to the fact that they're a little less adherent to taking the medications. So there is a bit of a compliance issue. It may not be quite right to say compliance, but they tend to have a few more side effects with some of the medicines. Also, there's a bit more depression that women experience after a heart attack uh, compared to a man. I think they just really feel like this, uh, they're very sort of taken aback by the event, and it takes them a little longer to get back on track. If the symptoms are different from women than they are for men, diagnosing women and men are the same, though. Is that right? The same tests are used, absolutely. And what so, are they? So, well, it depends on how you present. So, obviously, if you present to the emergency room with symptoms that are suggestive of a heart attack, and hopefully the clinicians are astute to the, the more vague symptoms in a woman, then, again, blood work to look for muscle enzyme elevations, an electrocardiogram to see if there's damage happening to the heart. That's all very routine. Sorry, just let me interrupt you. A muscle enzyme elevation, so that means that uh, when the heart muscle dies, it gives off something that you can measure. Correct. There's a certain blood test that tells about muscle damage, and it's extremely sensitive. So it goes up for a lot of conditions. So you really have to put that into context with the clinical scenario and the cardiogram. So there's a lot that goes into it, but that is extremely sensitive. So we use that, and that can go up relatively quickly after symptoms start. So that's one of the mainstays when you come in acutely with symptoms that suggest that you're having a heart problem. Now, if you're being seen in your doctor's office with symptoms, then again, there's appropriate testing that can be done. An electrocardiogram, even in the outpatient setting, can be helpful. But a lot of times, uh, your physician may recommend a stress test to see if you have evidence of heart disease, or if the symptoms are worrisome enough, going right to an angiogram where they go in and take a look with dye and look at the arteries directly. So that's where they put a little catheter in uh, your vein and they uh, snake it up to the heart, put some dye in there, and then they can actually see if the blood vessels that supply your heart are blocked. That's correct. So they take a catheter. It either happens through the groin or the wrist. They go up uh, through the artery, go up to the heart, and inject the dye, and it's all done under sort of X-ray cameras. And so they see if there's a defect um, that looks like it's significant, and then they make the decision whether they need to fix that. Now, not all blockages have to be fixed, and fixed means putting a stent in it or a scaffold that holds the artery open or maybe even bypass surgery. Sometimes these things can be treated with medicines. Uh, and if you uh, do uh, go to the cath lab and end up with a, a stent, is that end of the problem? I mean, that restores the blood flow, and, and how quickly does that have to be done after the event? Well, again, it depends on the presentation. So if you're presenting with a heart attack and, and there's differentiations for a heart attack, but a heart attack that's presenting where the muscle is dying sort of before your eyes, the ECG shows injury, then getting to the cath lab quickly to have this done is very important. The quicker you get there, the better, so there's no muscle damage or minimal muscle damage. So once a stent's put in there, it does, it opens up the artery and blood flow, flow is restored, but you can't forget what got you there. So all the risk factors that got you to have a heart attack still have to be addressed. All right, so let's talk about the risk factors. 
Well, there's a lot of risk factors that we talk about. There's things that we consider traditional and then non-traditional. When we talk about traditional risk factors, it is having high blood pressure, having diabetes, having high cholesterol. Those are the big ones. And smoking. So big, big risk factors. Aging is a risk factor we can't do anything about. And uh, male gender is also a higher risk factor. So those are the traditional risk factors we talk about. And a lot of those, you don't go into your doctor and say, I have high blood pressure. So it something that's asymptomatic. That's why it's very important to get exams done to see if you have high blood pressure and get your cholesterol checked as an adult. Obviously, if there's family history, that's another risk factor, although it's not considered traditional because we don't know how to score family history. But if you have a first-degree relative with heart disease, especially if it's at a young age, you're at higher risk. And are there any newer risk factors that we're watching for? Yes, there are. So I I said those were traditional. There's some non-traditional risk factors. What does that mean? Well, obesity is actually one. I mean, we talk about being overweight being a risk factor, but we know that it's not equal across the board. We know if you have more belly fat, that's a higher risk. That makes you more likely to become diabetic as well. But other things are having an inflammatory condition. So things like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus increase your risk of heart disease. And it's the inflammation that seems to be playing a role. And then lastly, for women, if they've had high blood pressure during pregnancy, that can be a risk factor for heart disease much later in life. When it comes to high blood pressure, any place now you can find a spot where you can sit down and check your blood pressure. Are those accurate? Should people be doing that on a regular basis more than just when they're in seeing their doctor? Well, those are accurate, but I don't think we need to worry everybody that every time they're in the store, they should go run and check their blood pressure. I think if there's family history of high blood pressure, you might be at risk. So it wouldn't be unreasonable that if your doctor saw numbers that were maybe a little bit borderline that you check them occasionally, because obviously when you go to your doctor's visit, that's just a one-time check. And so blood pressure can change all day long, every day. The salt you take in can affect it. If you are overweight, it can affect it. So I think having an intermittent check is not unreasonable, especially if you're prone to maybe it getting high because you have some risk factors or there's family history. One more quick question. People who don't exercise, are they more likely to have heart disease? Yes, they are. All right. We're talking about women's heart health with Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Rekha Mancad. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss a recent study that asked the question, do hot flashes indicate heart disease? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. We're back talking women's heart health with Mayo Clinic cardiologist and the director of the Mayo Clinic Women's Heart Clinic, Dr. Rekha Mancad. So, Dr. Mancat, a recent study asked the question, is there a connection between hot flashes and heart disease? So, yes, there was this study, and it did show a link between hot flashes and heart disease. This is complex, so I don't think that we have we take this study and say every woman that's having a hot flash should go run to her uh, doctor and say, I have heart disease. <laughs> so that's the first thing. But it does tell you that there is some type of link between these conditions. And what we do know is women who have hot flashes, and that's part of the vasomotor symptoms during menopause, might be at slightly higher risk um, of having heart events. Why is that? Well, these vasomotor symptoms and hot flashes might tell us that the vessels just don't work quite normally in these women. And again, I think it's very complex, so we don't know the direct link, but it seems that women 
who have a lot of these hot flashes, their arteries tend to be stiffer. They don't relax quite as well, which means they have something we call endothelial dysfunction, which just means that the artery just doesn't sort of relax appropriately during times of exercise or stress. So women can get more symptoms related to that. Now, whether that makes the artery more prone to heart events, I don't think is fully clear, but there does seem to be some marker that this might tell us to worry about that woman a little bit more. Where do uh, the heart specialists stand with regard, and particularly at Mayo, with regard to hormone replacement there? Yeah, this has gone through quite an evolution over the last couple of decades. We used to think hormone replacement therapy when a woman became menopausal was the best thing that they could do. Then studies showed that actually there was higher risk when women were on hormone therapy for heart attacks and strokes. We've kind of come to more of a middle ground now. We do not use hormone therapy specifically to protect a woman from a heart attack. So it's not used for that. If you don't have a contraindication to hormone therapy, and that's like already having a heart attack or a stroke or having breast cancer or other GYN cancers, we would consider hormone therapy, and you use the lowest dose that controls symptoms, and you start it soon after menopause. You don't want to be 10 years out from menopause and then start hormone therapy. That seems to be where then the risk for heart problems arises. So for uh, younger women who have just started menopause, a low-dose hormone therapy might be reasonable to control uh, hot flashes, Absolutely. Sweats, right. Absolutely. But you wouldn't prescribe it specifically to prevent heart disease. Correct, correct. Let's talk about prevention, because that's what this month can be all about. Well, and I would say women and men, and I know we're talking about women specifically, but I, I again, heart disease is the number one killer for both men and women. And I will point out that with all of this that we've done over the last several decades talking about women and heart disease, the numbers for women dying of heart disease actually have come down so that now women and men, the numbers are equal for those dying of heart disease. It used to be that more women were dying than men. So well, that's good news. Yes, that's very good news. So I think yeah. we've done a good job, but obviously it's still the number one killer for all of us. So when we talk about uh, prevention, there's lots of things we can do. Uh, certainly uh, being conscientious of your own personal risk. What does that mean? Well, if you're diabetic, you should uh, treat your diabetes aggressively, control your blood sugars, eat healthy, go to the doctor regularly. If you're diagnosed with high blood pressure, uh, take your medications, exercise regularly, watch your salt intake. If you don't have those specific conditions, what else can you do? Well, never smoke, that's for sure. If you are a smoker, you should quit. If you are overweight, you should make attempts to lose weight. I tell my patients that even more than just losing weight is to be aerobically fit. Incorporate exercise into your daily schedule if possible. The American Heart Association recommends 150 minutes of moderate exercise weekly. So those are some of the key things that you can certainly do to make yourself as heart healthy as possible. When you talk about a healthy diet, what do you consider a healthy diet? Well, the diet that actually has gotten um, a lot of um, sort of advertisement or and uh, we as cardiologists believe is one of the most heart healthy is actually the Mediterranean diet. So there is a big study that actually showed how much it could improve uh, your cholesterol numbers and actually decrease cardiovascular events. What's in the Mediterranean diet, I can you certainly can look online for that. But what I tell my patients, that really includes fish as your main source of protein, very little red meat, lots of 
of vegetables, good fats like olive oil, avocados, some nuts, and a lot of uh, like lentils, legumes, things like that. So they used to say that the cardiologist diet was, if it tastes good, spit it out. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you only live one life. So I tell people never restrict anything completely. Just have it in really small portions. Because if you say you should never have something, that's when you crave it the most. (laughs) Amen, sister. Uh, (laughs) It seems like women are becoming more aware of taking care of their heart, or is that just because you and I are talking about it more? I think it's a combination. So I I think there's still some unmet needs. I think that if you look at the African-American population or the Hispanic population, the message isn't quite as strong there. So we still have communities that we need to get this message to. But I do think we have done quite a bit over the last several years um, getting this message out. But like I said, people do recognize this as sort of, yes, this is a number one killer, but they need to make sure that they understand their own personal risk. What about uh, a baby aspirin every day? Still recommend or? No. So no? no, no. So not as a routine. So, you know, aspirin, it's good for people who have had a heart problem. What does that mean? A heart attack, having a stent, bypass surgery, somebody who's had a stroke. But just because you're 45 years old and you say, well, I don't want to have a heart attack, I should take an aspirin? No, that actually is not the case. And there's some difference between men and women. So for a woman, uh, especially if she's under the age of 60, 65, there is no benefit for her of taking an aspirin as prophylactic or preventative. For Mm -hmm. men, there does seem to be some benefit for heart disease risk. For women, there seems to be a little bit of a stroke prevention risk. But again, the the risk of bleeding for low-risk populations outweighs the benefit. Even with a baby aspirin. Mm-hmm. What is uh, the latest in research when it comes to women's heart health? There is a subset of heart disease that happens in young women that's not related to atherosclerosis, which is what we've been talking about, and that's something called spontaneous coronary artery dissection. It's a condition where young women's arteries tear, usually during times of stress, although it doesn't have to be. These are women that don't have risk factors for uh, heart disease, the traditional risk factors that we just talked about, but present with uh, a heart attack. And you don't know who's going to develop that. So right now, there's not, we don't know how to prevent those, but we have to treat those very differently. So there's a lot happening at Mayo Clinic in that regard. Uh, a couple of my colleagues actually have, we have some of the largest registers here for that condition. I thought that was for mostly women who had just given birth, but it's for any young woman? Yeah, so that is, if you look at when that can occur, after, during or after childbirth is a very common time, but it's not universal. Many women have had it after they went out for a run or after some other stressful sort of uh, event. Well, believe it or not, Tracy, February is coming to a close, wrapping up American Heart Month, and we've been discussing women's heart health with Mayo Clinic expert Dr. Rekha Mancad. Dr. Mancad is director of the Mayo Clinic Women's Heart Clinic. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Thank you very much. Always a a pleasure. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about an effective new treatment for BPH. And later on in the show, an update from Mayo Clinic's Well Living Lab. Do you want to hear and see more Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Or check out more than 200 Mayo Clinic Radio segments on video that are now available on YouTube. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with headlines from the Mayo Clinic News Network. We'll start off with a question about the flu. Can you get it twice in one season? 
Infectious diseases specialist Dr. Pratish Tosh says the influenza epidemic continues across much of the U.S. For those who had the flu earlier in the season, it is possible to become infected with another strain. He says people can get two different influenza infections in the same season, but often it's not going to be from the same strain. Dr. Tosh wants us to remember that there's always one influenza A strain that will predominate, but a couple of influenza B strains that are also co-circulating at the same time. Dr. Tosh says these are reasons why people should get vaccinated, even if it's in the middle of the influenza season. And now let's shift to talking about e-cigarettes. Most health officials will tell you they believe e-cigarettes are less harmful than a conventional tobacco cigarette. But there is still plenty of uncertainty regarding the damage that e-cigarette vapor can cause to a person's body over time. The use of electronic cigarettes, also called vaping, has exploded in the last five years. And Dr. J. Taylor Hayes, director of the Mayo Clinic Nicotine Dependence Center, says there are probably 600 different kinds you can buy on the Internet, and there are seven to 8,000 different solutions that you can purchase. Dr. Hayes says e-cigarette manufacturing is a relatively unregulated industry. And while some people might think they are safe to vape, Dr. Hayes says the harmful chemicals in that vapor are similar to tobacco smoke, but at much lower levels. He says it is safer, but it's not safe. What we don't know are what long-term effects these lower-level toxicants have. Dr. Hayes says some patients prefer to use these cigarettes as an aid to stop smoking. He says while vaping is less harmful than smoking cigarettes, there are safer and proven effective alternatives for people who want to quit smoking, such as behavioral counseling, even brief counseling, and approved medications. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Benign prostatic hyperplasia, or hypertrophy. It's known as BPH. It's an enlargement of the prostate gland, and it's a common condition as men get older. In fact, it affects 50% of men over the age of 50, and as you age, as you get older, you're even more likely to have BPH. An enlarged prostate gland can cause uncomfortable urinary symptoms, frequency, straining, weak stream, and BPH, or an enlarged prostate, can also increase the risk for bladder, urinary tract, and kidney problems. Does not not sound, a good thing. No. You women get off easy when yeah, it comes sure, to this problem. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> Previously, treatment for BPH usually involved one of three options, watchful waiting and behavioral changes, drug therapy, or surgery or laser treatment. But now a new option, steam treatment, has shown great promise, and it's changing the way doctors treat BPH. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Toby Kohler. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kohler. It's nice to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you on the program. And we're all looking forward to, especially the men in the audience, (laughs) looking forward to hearing about this new treatment for BPH because it is so common. Before we do that, tell us a little bit about the prostate gland. Where is it? What does it do? Why is it a problem? Well, the prostate gland keeps guys like me in business. That's, that's pretty much the bottom line. <laughs> so far, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it doesn't really have that much of a purpose other than to contribute a little bit of a fluid to the ejaculate. But, uh, yeah, it just tends to cause problems. It's situated between the bladder and the urethra. And I like to describe it to patients as a donut. And so that donut 
uh, is the prostate, and you pee through the donut hole. So all those treatments you mentioned, with the exception of watchful waiting, seeks to basically increase the size of that donut hole or relax the pressure around the donut hole so men can urinate better. But you, you said it really doesn't do that much, but we couldn't reproduce without it, right? Well, technically, you could extract sperm and do a whole procedure and get, get somebody pregnant that way, but you couldn't have sex the old-fashioned way and get somebody pregnant without your prostate. You're right. It, it's sort of the grease, the lubrication that helps the sperm get up to the egg. Is that it? Uh, in a way, yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> explain it better. Well, it contributes energy to the sperm. Oh, it's there like you go. The energizes the it sperm. energizes and it helps control the pH to make the otherwise uh, harsh conditions that the sperm wouldn't would encounter more why survivable. Does, why does a normally healthy prostate all of a sudden start to develop these BPH type symptoms? Uh, it's just it's in the genetic destiny. Mm-hmm. So as we get older, the prostate gets bigger. And if you look at the decade of life, that's the prevalence of enlargement. So if you're an 80-year-old, you have an 80% chance of having a large prostate. If you're 100 years old, you're pretty much 100% chance of having a large prostate. And then half of those men who have enlargement will actually have symptoms that bother them that we have to do something about. But isn't it interesting that it gets larger as we get older and when we don't really need it? I mean, right. you'd think it would shrink, wouldn't you? I mean, wouldn't that be ideal? Not for a urologist. (laughs) (laughs) What are some of the? uh, Let's go through the pros and cons of both of the of the treatments, the three treatments options that we mentioned. Okay, so let's start with the the most conservative, which is active surveillance. Okay, so we used to think, at least, that you know, if men have problems urinating, we don't really need to do anything about it unless it's causing symptoms, unless it's bothering you enough. Some guys get up twice in the middle of the night and they're happy with it. Other guys are miserable getting up twice. So basically, um, typically act if the men are bothered, and that, that's a signal that we need to do something. Now, there are some hard and fast signs where we act, absolutely have to intervene, like recurrent infections or inability to empty your bladder uh, or bleeding or damage to the kidneys, etc. But for the most part, the guys that I see, they come in because they're bothered by their symptoms. Before we finish on that watchful waiting, is there anything an individual can do to make it better? Yes, you know, a lot of the complaints that we have in regard to urination uh, have to do with urgency, frequency, and then getting up in the middle of the night. So lifestyle changes can drastically affect that. So we do know that, first of all, being a healthy weight and having a slimmer waistline is better for the prostate. You tend to have less problems. Also, what you drink and what you eat uh, makes a big difference in your symptoms. So if you drink a lot of caffeine, you can expect to get up more often. If you drink alcohol before you go to bed, you can expect to have to get up in the middle of the night. So the easiest lifestyle changes, if you're having problems getting up in the middle of the night, are drink less before you go to bed, a couple hours, elevate your legs before you go to bed so you can get all that extra fluid that's accumulated underneath your socks in your bladder before you actually you know, are lying down, uh, and then avoid um, alcohol or other kind of uh, fluids that were going to make you urinate more often. What is the drawback to drug therapy? Well, uh, there's a couple. First of all, it's cost, and this is a pill that you have to take every day. And then there are pretty much side effects. So very little, few things in life are free. So when you take these medications that relax the prostate, sometimes you end up with ejaculatory dysfunction so that when men orgasm, they don't see fluid come out. Other times you have uh, problems with dizziness when you stand too, quick, too quickly, et cetera. Uh, as a matter of fact, like airline pilots, they can't take this medication mm. because of its you know, potential side effects. So, But most of the time it's inconvenience and cost and some of the sexual side effects with pills that... 
you know. All right. We know there are lots of of surgical options. There have been, there's lots of different ways to treat this uh, surgically, but you've got a new way, steam treatment. Tell us about that. Yeah. So remember that the prostate, the donut, as as you will, is surrounded by uh, nerves that that make erections possible. And then at the either end of the donut uh, are sphincters, the the valves that control your ability to start, start and stop urination. So whenever you operate on the prostate and try to make that hole bigger, uh, historically, we would have to use some kind of a heat source. The heat would go too far and affect those nerves that affect erections, mm-hmm. or the heat could injure the valve, which stops and starts the stream. So a risk of most procedures uh, that surgically target the prostate is erectile dysfunction and or uh, incontinence. Right. Uh, and, so, and then the last one would be ejaculatory dysfunctions, because when men ejaculate, uh, the valve at the bladder end has to snap shut or be closed. But when you cut out a lot of extra tissue, sometimes that doesn't work anymore. So then the semen goes backwards uh, into the bladder. And so, so that bothers some men. But how is steam treatment better? So the difference with this is that the steam treatment actually uses a uh, convective heat source instead of conductive heat. So that means that the nerves that are outside the prostate never get heated up because the heat is targeted within the steam ball that this treatment produces. So we put a little tiny needle in, in the office, we hit a button, nine seconds, the machine goes ping, and then you, you form a two centimeter steam ball in the prostate. Everything that steam ball touches essentially dies. And that's a good thing because after a few months, there's going to be a giant crater there and you're going to be able to urinate a lot better because now you've made the donut hole a lot bigger. At the same time, you don't affect either valve on the front end or the back end. So you don't get retrograde ejaculation. You don't get problems with incontinence, and you, and also you don't affect erections. Outpatient procedure? Yeah, so you can either do it in the office. Uh, it takes about five to ten minutes, uh, the actual procedure part, or you can do it as like an outpatient same-day surgery, depending on the size of the prostate, that kind of thing. And is it covered by insurance? Absolutely, it's covered by insurance. Wow. Uh, complications? Of course, with anything, bad things can happen, but the reason why so many men select this one as opposed to others there's less problems with bleeding. Uh, there's no problems with erections. There's much less problems with ejaculation. You always are still at risk of getting infections uh, afterward. Sometimes uh, your urination is going to be temporarily made worse because what we do is we irritate the area by putting the device in and by going through the whole uh, uh, rigmarole there. But other than that, it's pretty minimal side effects. Success rate? Success rate, uh, very good, very high. So uh, this treatment is relatively new, so we don't have good long-term data. But so far, uh, three years out, uh, you know, greater than 90 to 95 percent of men are doing excellent, which is as good as as you can do. Do you expect then that this will take drug therapy and surgery away, and you'll just use the steam treatment? Well, for me personally, I used to do the laser surgery, green light mm-hmm. laser, and this this has essentially replaced wow. this practice so far. In terms of medications, I think it will because, first of all, there's two points to address. Number one, not everybody wants to take medications, but they would settle for them because there was no risk of problems with erections and ejaculation. Now those risks are gone, which obviously a lot of men are worried about. The second thing is it turns out that there probably is a price to waiting. If you delay treatment by using medications five to ten years, it turns out the guys who wait longer never are as happy as the guys who intervene earlier. So now that there's an option available that's quick, easy, paid for by insurance, and has minimal side effects, 
I think it's going to replace some of the medication market. All right, and we want a happy guy. Right, Tracy? We all do. <laughs> all right, steam treatment for benign <laughs> prostatic hyperplasia, enlargement of the prostate gland. Dr. Toby Kohler, urologist, Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for telling us about this new treatment. Thanks for having me. When we come back, we'll hear about the first study resulting from Mayo Clinic's Well Living Lab. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, whether you're at home, at work, or at school, it's estimated that Americans spend 90% of their time indoors. What many people don't realize is that buildings and everything in them can affect our health and well-being. In 2015, a collaboration between Delos and Mayo Clinic opened the Well Living Lab, an office that doubles as a laboratory to test how acoustics, temperature, and lighting can affect those working in that space. The first results of this experiment are in, and joining us to discuss the findings are Dr. Brent Bauer. Hello, Dr. Bauer. Hello, and thanks for having me back. Yes, and Dr. Anya Yamrazik. Dr. Yamrazik is the Well Living Lab's behavioral science consultant, joining us by telephone. Hello, Dr. Yamrazik. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, tell us about uh, DELOS, D-E-L-O-S. What What is that organization? Yes, so it's a real estate company um, who have founded the Well Building Standard. Um, a building standard that's focused on human health and well-being. And they are part of the collaboration of the uh, well-building lab along with Mayo. All right. So, Dr. Bauer, the well-living lab obviously goes hand-in-hand with that. Right. So I think of it as a collaboration between health science, represented by Mayo and Mayo's expertise in doing health and wellness clinical research, and then building science, which is what our collaborators from Dalos bring to the table, And you put those two together in a configurable lab so we can make it office space, we can make it residential space, and then we actually bring people who come and do their work or actually come and live there, and that gives us an opportunity to see how things like the environment, changing light, changing sound, changing acoustics, can actually impact their health either for good or for negative. So how do you measure the effects of what you're changing? So it's a it's a highly censored lab, which means we have sensors to measure uh, humidity, temperature, light, the different forms of light, uh, the color, temperature of light, the different sounds. We also have a lot of ways of measuring the humans. So they can wear wearables. We can do daily surveys. Anya has led a lot of the behavioral components of how do we measure people's behavior in these spaces as well. That's what I just was going to ask, Dr. Yamrazik. How do you measure the effect of these different variables on the workers? So we use gold standard measures from psychology research and cognitive neuroscience research to get at these questions. So there are a lot of validated surveys, along with lots of behavioral tests, for example, to test how the environment impacts people's cognitive performance. How did you build the lab? I mean, who who built it, and did you collaborate uh, together to decide how to build the lab? Yeah, I think that's one of the strengths of the Well Living Lab. It really is a collaborative approach. Uh, Dalos brings a great deal of knowledge about buildings, building science, Mayo has this great track record of doing clinical research, and we asked really a a wide range of folks, both at Mayo, Delos, and in industry and other academic centers, if you were going to build a a, a real environment. So when you walk into our office space, we don't want you to feel like you're in a a laboratory. We don't want you to have to wear wires and have things taped to your head and, and make it feel artificial. So people who are over there right now are actually Mayo employees. We brought their computers over there. They're sitting there. They go in there every day just like it's their regular office. But it allows us then to see how things like changing light. When we put more blue light 
into the, the lighting spectrum, we actually see improvement in productivity. So there's some very simple things we can measure but can have huge impact on wellness, productivity, things that if we translate across the institution or other houses or other environments, schools, hospitals. So I think we're just at the kind of the cusp of some very cool opportunities to change the environment, change your health. That is so interesting. So let's talk about what the first studies have found out. Dr. Yamarazic, what did you find out? Mm-hmm. Well, the first one I yeah, like so is that the blue light in, improves the productivity. <laughs> That's right. So in the first study, this is a proof of concept study to see whether the living lab could be used as a testbed to answer some of these questions. So we had people come into the lab and stay for 18 weeks. And during that 18 weeks, we set up six different environmental scenes. So these were combinations of acoustic conditions, lighting conditions, and thermal conditions, which were each repeated for at least two weeks, non-consecutive weeks. And then we tested what impact those scenes had on participants who were in the space. As Dr. Bauer mentioned, they were just working in the space, treating it as their typical office. And we wanted to know whether these changes in the office environment would affect their satisfaction with their space, their workday experience, their feelings, and some health behaviors. And what we found is that the environment actually had quite a powerful effect. So changes in the environment impacted how satisfied people were, how uh, well they thought they were working, uh, some of their feelings, so for example, how happy they felt along with some health behaviors that even went outside of the lab. So, for example, reported sleep problems. People were reporting fewer sleep problems with blue and rich light in the lab. Wow. Were you surprised, Dr. Bauer, by some of these re- uh, results? Well, y- y- to a certain degree, yes. Uh, we know from a lot of research in what are called chamber studies, where you don't have a real-world environment, but you put people in a box and you wire them up and you get lots of sensors. So you're really very much a lab rat. But we know from a lot of studies like that, that we expect light to have an impact. The question is, how much impact does it have in the real world? So this is kind of a transition from the chamber study idea into a real-world study. But then I think the next step is to translate those results and bring them out into the real, real world. So maybe have 100 uh, offices here in Mayo wired one way, 100 a different way. Can we replicate those results at a high level? At which point, if we do, I think then you start to say, yes, we should change the lights in this room, for example. Wow, that is so fascinating. So is that the next study that you're going to be doing, or what's happening next in the Well Living Lab? Let's go there. So so we've just completed two more studies. Anya was instrumental in both of those, and she may want to talk about those. We have another study coming up, again, focusing on lighting, looking at dynamic lighting. How does light shifting throughout the day impact, again, health and wellness, but also productivity? But Anya may want to speak to the two we just completed. So in this first day that I just mentioned, um, we found that um, having access to daylight and view along with uh, changes in electrical lighting impacted people in the space. So we really honed in on that on these two uh, subsequent studies. So in one, we are testing the effects of um, having access to daylight and view and how that impacts uh, people's productivity and their performance and their satisfaction. And in another study, we're specifically focusing on blue and rich light and how that impacts their performance. Um, their satisfaction and their sleep outside of the lab. We're talking about the Well Living Lab and what we're learning about the work environment with Dr. Brent Bauer, Medical Director of the Well Living Lab and from Montreal, Canada, Behavioral Science Consultant, Dr. Anya Yamrasik. Thanks so much for being with us, both of you. Our pleasure. Thank you so much. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs.
Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.